there's a huge need on in Toronto and Ontario too, of course. But what they really realized was that if they did that, if they took those vacant buildings away, it would actually help support the rest of the office market because there's less supply. Uh, it would help create housing and it would actually really help their tax base too because they could start charging tax on these buildings that had been essentially vacant for years. There was like a win-win-win situation, more housing, less vacancy, more tax revenue for the city, really just a, a good play for them. Hello, and welcome to Sink or Swim, a weekly podcast brought to you by RentSync, where we take a deep dive into the prop tech, multifamily, and rental housing industry. In each episode, we uncover the technologies and strategies used to help overcome operational challenges and increase the value of your multifamily investments. So let's get into our conversation today. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Sink or Swim, the podcast where we take a deep dive into the prop tech, multifamily, and rental housing industry. I'm your host, Giacomo Lattice, and I'm joined today by Stephen Painter. Stephen is the global leader of building transformation and adaptive reuse at Gensler. Stephen led Gensler's original research team, which developed a conversion algorithm for the rapid assessment of existing office building stock and ESG assessment. Stephen, I know you're a very busy man, so thank you so much for joining us today. No problem. Thanks for inviting me on. Yes, of course. So the main reason why we want to have you on is to really dive deeper into an updated blog post uh, where you guys discuss what you've learned in assessing more than 1,000 potential office to residential conversions. And I think just a good place to start is maybe to give some background on yourself in the specific industry and your contributions at Gensler. Yeah, for sure. So I've been working in the architecture field for about 20 years now and originally started in the UK, came to Canada in 2012 when the UK economy was very much in trouble as it is again now actually, but came here because Toronto at the time and still now is the most construction cranes of any city in the world. Great place to come and be an architect. But my career is really focused on the kind of complicated, weird projects that no one else really wanted to touch. They're the ones that were most interesting. They're the ones with the best design fees. And there's a real niche that I got into for complicated adaptive reuse or luxury retail or difficult sites. And it's the kind of thing I enjoy doing and a great opportunity to do that at Gensler uh, all across the US and most of Europe too. Well, hey, from someone from Toronto, we're thrilled that you did because the contributions that we've seen has been amazing and you know we're going to dive right into it. So let's talk about the approach mentioned in the blog for assessing potential office to residential conversions. Maybe give people a little deeper dive into what this algorithm is, what the approach is, and just a little background on that. Yeah. So we actually started it in the end of 2019 and we were worried then, believe it or not, that there was a recession coming in the real estate industry and everyone was starting to freak out. Obviously, no one knew the, the real you know, impact of what was going to happen, but it started to look like the class C and B office buildings, the ones that people really didn't you know, love, were going to struggle and they were going to struggle more and more as time progressed. And you'd started to see vacancy in those buildings rising essentially since 2015 up until 2019. And we wanted to work out what to do with them. So we went to clients and said, you know, there's a huge housing crisis in Canada. Why don't you convert some of these to housing? And the answer we got back most of the time was we spent loads of time and loads of money on studying a project and it just didn't work. And we never want to think about doing it again. At the same time, though, we had other projects in the US that were under construction, some that were finished and they were beautiful and the clients were really happy. So we wanted to figure out why most of the time clients hated this idea and couldn't make it function. And then sometimes it did, and it, it created great projects. And 
if you assume that all clients are of equal ability and all architects are of equal ability, then it must come down to the physical constraints of the building and the location. All of that, all the physical constraints, all of the information about a building is basically data. It's information. It's not design. So the algorithm that we built started to look at buildings as if they were a data set. You know, what can I get about the building? What metrics can I plug in to an algorithm to compare the office building, floor plate size, quarter window depth, floor to floor height, all that kind of stuff, vintage of the building, run calculations against that data, and then compare it to a Goldilocks residential building. And that's essentially what we're doing. We're saying the bones of this office building, the location of this office building is X percentage match to a Goldilocks residential building. And therefore, we know if it could be converted or not. And you know, from the thousand buildings, as you said, thousand and five buildings as of today that we've studied, about 30% physically work or in a location people would want to live, have access to transit or parking or whatever, and the rest don't. But instead of spending three or four months and hundred, you know, $150,000, $200,000 working that out for every building, we can do it less than a day typically. So it really speeds up the process, gets you to the buildings that are going to work get you there quickly and prevents all of the heartache and wasted money and frustration of spending three months on a project that was never going to physically work in the first place. Right. It sounds like, you know, you can scale it, you can do it quicker. It just almost makes more sense if you can do anything with a little bit more seamless net through an algorithm. Why not try that with this field? And that's kind of what we found so interesting about that. And it started out in the, with the Calgary Economic Development, right? So on the Western side of Canada? They were the first people to really be interested in it. We'd create the algorithm we kind of written a few blog posts about it. And what I always do with these new ideas is you half create the idea and then you go and tell people. And if they're excited, then you finish finish the work. If, if you go and tell people, hey, I have this thing and nobody cares, then you don't have a product. So we were kind of there. We had kind of had the concept working, wrote a blog about it and did some, some interviews on CBC and stuff. And the team from Calgary Economic Development saw that and came to us and said, hey, we have a huge vacancy problem. Like Calgary pre-COVID had about 38% vacancy. So they wanted to know what to do about it. And they liked the idea of creating housing, obviously, um, some huge importance in Canada right now. So could they take that vacancy, that 14 million square foot of vacancy they had in the city, and could they make housing out of it? So we said, sure, let's take a look. And we actually reviewed almost every single office building in the downtown. And we went back to them and said, look, the market can support about 3 million square feet of conversions. That's about what you'd be able to do, market-ready, physically viable. If you want to get to half of the vacancy being removed, so 7 million square feet, then you need to start looking at incentives. You need to start looking at process improvements and things like that. And we went back to them with a number of $75 a square foot. That was the gap between getting 3 million square feet done and, and 7 million. And to my you know, honest surprise, they were like, okay, great, let's do it. And it took about three months. They uh, put the incentive program together. So you can now get $75 a square foot cash incentive on the completion of the project up to a cap of $15 million per building. And it's been incredibly successful. They've just announced, I think, their 17th building. They're the only city in North America that has a decreasing vacancy right now. And it's creating you know, the first five projects that are finished, finishing this year. It's going to increase the housing population in downtown by 24%. So 
the impact has been extraordinary. We've been able to actually take that and use that approach in dozens of US and Canadian cities now. And I've got to say, none of them have done it as smoothly and as efficiently as Calgary, but it is moving with federal incentive programs and so on. Uh, it's starting to really happen. Yeah, it's interesting to mention Calgary because what we're seeing right now with the rental market the way it is, there's literally tens of thousands of people who left Ontario last month to go to Calgary in search for more affordable rent. And it seems like Calgary is, is meeting that challenge through things such as this by the Office of Residential Conversions to the point where even though they have such an influx of people looking for apartments, they're actually, like you mentioned, actually the vacancies are kind of reducing a little bit because they're meeting that challenge. So that seems to be the hotspot right now where, yes, it's working great, but it needs to work great because there's a huge need for it, right, with the people coming in. There's a huge need on in Toronto and Ontario too, of course. But what they really realized was that if they did that, if they took those vacant buildings away, it would actually help support the rest of the office market because there's less supply. Uh, it would help create housing and it would actually really help their tax base too because they could start charging tax on these buildings that had been essentially vacant for years. There was like a win-win-win situation, more housing, less vacancy, more tax revenue for the city, really just a, a good play for them. Yeah. I'm kind of curious too, if we're just going off, you know, that city, like what are like what are the challenges and opportunities that you found in other areas in North America? The, the blog mentions Toronto, I believe it even mentions Philadelphia. So, you know, compare and contrast maybe what you what you were met with at Calgary compared to other areas such as Toronto or Philadelphia. You know, bring it back to Toronto, it's the kind of opposite story right now. And there is discussions with councillors and so on about trying to do a similar thing in Toronto. But at the moment, if you remove a one square foot of office anywhere in Toronto, you have to replace that somewhere else. So no one in their right mind is going to convert an office building and then build a new office building to meet that bylaw somewhere down the street for it to sit empty. It's, it's an insane policy. And that is a problem that Toronto is trying to work through, but Calgary did it. They did it in three months. They got their policy together. They shortened their approvals timeline from 18 months down to six weeks, and they did it very, very quickly. Toronto is behind. Like We're working with small cities across the US and Canada that are ahead, and it's kind of a shame, honestly, to see one of the biggest cities in, in North America lagging behind on this stuff especially when there's a critical housing need right now. Yeah, especially in Toronto. That sounds like that would be something that would help this process is maybe let's not replace every foot of office that we take with a new one, right? There's There has to be some things that you've seen that they say, hey, if we just do this, we can maybe really promote this office residential conversions, right? You know, there's going to be a need for office space, new office space again in the future, but it's going to be new space. You know, let's remove the defunct 70s space that pre-COVID no one liked, you know, is kind of depressing office space. And now they have a choice. They're just not going to it. So let's take that offline. Let's create housing. And then in 10 years when the office market is back or five years when the office market is back, let's build new office then. Let's build great office space then that people really want. Let's build it in the right locations. But we have an urgent need now that we need to deal with. And I think we're kind of worrying about some perceived future concept and hurting ourselves in the short term yeah we're kind of in that weird middle phase where we're like are things going to go back how they were wait no one's coming back to the office oh they are sometimes people move to tertiary markets they didn't have to live in the downtown core now they're coming back so just that weird middle phase we're in right now yeah it is and i think there's still a lot of people in real estate that have to bet on the office market coming back because that's where all of their their eggs are or the you know whatever 
euphemism you want to use, but the clear facts are it's not like the the class A, the trophy class stuff is doing pretty well. People are moving to that space, but the buildings that people don't want are dead. The discussion on that really should be finished at this point. And that's fine. Like we have as a country and as a world, a huge history of recycling buildings when they became redundant. You know, look at around Toronto, all of the amazing loft buildings that used to be manufacturing, used to be office a hundred years ago, 50 years ago. And we've converted them. You know, I used to live in a, at Robert Watson Lofts, which is a converted factory building. I used to live in a, an old tobacco factory before that. Like there's this big kind of past of doing this stuff. We just need to keep doing it now as well. Like what you hear so far? Make sure you never miss an episode by clicking the subscribe button now. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you for your support. Now let's get back to the show. Yeah, I want to circle back with a point that you mentioned about like these older out-of-date office spaces like something surprising is that like features that would make a unpleasant office actually make for an ideal multifamily home what are those features like go into some details about that because i don't think i really had a grasp on that and i don't really know the differences and what people are actually looking for what they don't want and don't want yeah it's kind of funny the presentation that we do about this we used to call it bad office makes good residential and then some people got upset with us calling their offices bad so we've changed it over, but it's really true. Honestly, the buildings that we're in, talking to our clients about and encouraging our clients to buy now are the worst buildings. They are low ceilings. They are uh, outdated. All of the equipment is defunct, you know, mechanical equipment, the facades are leaking and that's great because you've got to replace all the mechanical equipment anyway. So yeah. why not, instead of buying a building which has functioning or, you know, New equipment, buy one that's the equipment's dead. Like, great, take that space. The low ceilings thing is interesting as well because if you've got an office building, typically they're built with a much higher floor to floor than residential. And as an example, one project we did in Philadelphia had an 11 foot six floor to floor. As an office building, it had about an eight foot six ceiling. Strip all of that out, all of the big ducts you need to support you know, a number of people, a number of computers on a, an office floor. And we ended up with 10 foot six ceilings in the residential. And that's great. You know, that's top of market. But as an office, it was the bottom end of the market. The one we're doing at Young and St. Clair, for example, they had eight foot ceilings throughout that office building, even lower in the cores. When we stripped all of that out, we'll get 10 foot two ceilings for residential. So some of those factors that just made low kind of unpleasant office space are great when you can convert them over to residential. And even other things like the typical 70s building, when they were 60s or 70s building, when they were built, they were built for cellular offices and cubicles, right? So kind of small, shallow quarter window depth. When we took all of those out, people started to want to have bigger floor plans, more collaboration space and so on. So those buildings are now not desirable. But you know what residential units are? They're a series of small rooms or small office size rooms. They plan out great. You get a, a building with 35 feet quarter window that was originally set up for a corridor and three cubicles. It's now a corridor, a bedroom, a kitchen, and a living space. Great, you know, but it's not desirable for for big kind of open collaborative office space. No, it's interesting. So there's actually like, there's some parts that you keep and some parts you don't keep that you look for. Like I never thought, hey, an eight foot ceiling. Well, it's actually not eight feet because we can remove two feet out of that and then it's going to be higher than you thought that. It's interesting. There's some parts that you want, some parts you don't want, but I guess you have the flexibility of, no, I actually can 
get rid of all the ductwork. I can completely change how it looks like up in the ceiling and I'll give you space. So most people probably don't even have that foresight of, oh, this actually goes up. <laughs> like we actually can open the space up. Yeah, there's actually stuff above there. I mean, if you could see the office outside my uh, room here, it's got kind of two foot deep by three foot wide ducts in it. And you know, think about a typical condo, it has a six inch round duct in it. You know, it's just a factor of smaller spaces with less people in it in, in residential. So you do have that extra height to really lift it up and really do you know, something special with it. Stephen, you mentioned about 25 to, was it 25 to 30% of buildings that you scored are like actually suitable for this type of conversion space. Why is that? Like such a small amount. I know you kind of went into some details about the office space. Is it really much that there's only so much to work with or there's not enough? Like a little more deeper, why so many of these aren't actually... Yeah, well, there's some really simple factors, right? If you look around the city at office buildings, uh, you'll find a surprising number that only have windows on two sides. Say they're stuck between other buildings or they are huge floor plates, for example. And that just doesn't work for residential. You can't have a residential tower with only windows on two sides because you know half the units aren't going to get windows. That doesn't work. The same with the floor plate sizes. It's not uncommon to you know, come out of the elevators and have 60 feet between you and the glazing. Now, in an office space, that doesn't feel too bad. But when you change that to residential, your 600 square foot one plus den unit is now 10 feet wide and 60 feet long. And that's not good. So a lot of those buildings are just kind of discounted straight away because they just physically don't work. They don't have the glazing. They don't have the floor plate size and so on. So that discounts a lot of them. but that's fine. Like if we can find 30% vacancy in Toronto right now is I think 15% or something like that. So we don't need to convert 30% of buildings because only 15% of vacancy. What we're aiming for, and this is what Calgary aimed for, is about half of the vacancy in each city. So in yeah. Toronto, that's going to be somewhere between 5 and 7%. In, uh, in Calgary, it's 15%, 17%, something like that. And that's fine. It feels falls way below the threshold of number of buildings that we can actually do. Um, so when people say it doesn't work for every building, my answer is like, yeah, it doesn't need to, you know, it needs to work for 5%. And even at 5%, it creates in the Canadian market, tens of thousands of residential units in the U S market over as it worked out to about 1.2 million residential units that you'd get out of doing the conversions. I guess like location of the buildings don't really matter too much, right? There's not like most office spaces are located away from necessities and, and homes are right so that never seems to be an issue or is it maybe in some other areas across the country or even the states we do factor it in honestly and there's a, a couple of reasons for that you take a suburban office building and a sea of parking people don't really want to live like that and when we do look at those projects and you're actually seeing this a lot around toronto uh, in shopping malls and in office parks the best idea is to you know maybe do the conversion but also add density so you're seeing you know, square one or it's, um, they're looking at adding huge amounts of density to the site to get rid of that surface parking. So that's kind of a different approach to creating housing. The other location thing that's important is will people pay a premium to live there, right? And that makes more projects viable because you're going to get more rent. And if you look at, for example, we're doing a project at 160 Water Street in, in New York, it's kind of a difficult building. It only has glazing on three sides. We need to do some real tricks to make the floor plate work. But it's right near Wall Street. It's a great location, great neighborhood, premium rents there. So the project makes sense. And you know, it's going to end up being a great building and very successful. 
But if I took that building and I put it in, you know, suburban Toronto or Calgary or something, it would never work because the rents there aren't at the same level as they are in you know, downtown New York, obviously. I can't imagine the differences there. Right? We're talking about the average rent in Canada being around $2,100 a month. Yeah, I think their studios are like 3500 US and the, the one beds are 4500 I think, so US. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> US. <laughs> oh my. Uh, so it's a big difference. Yeah. Well, let's keep on the, the theme of costs. So obviously there are costs and sustainability advantages to this approach, especially compared to new construction. I personally would like to know a lot more about this than I know our audience would. So yeah, what are those like cost and sustainable advantages from doing this as opposed to new construction builds? Yeah, so the, the cost comes down to a couple of things. Firstly, you already have the structure there and that's a big saving. And then you're also going to be able to do them a lot more quickly because you don't have to build the structure. And we all know from living in the city that when you start to see a condo project under construction, it's like six to eight months to dig a hole, another six to eight months to come back up the ground level. And then you start going up at one floor every two weeks or or whatever. So there's a huge amount of time saving by starting with a building that exists. That translates, of course, into cost and it translates into savings on the amount of interest that you're paying uh, on your construction loan or on the loan you took out to buy the site or whatever. That's a big saving. And then, of course, the structural saving. And that translates on average across the projects we've been doing at about 35% cheaper to do a repositioning project than it is to do a ground up if you start with the right building. Start with the wrong building, it's a disaster. But start with the right building, you're going to be... 30, 35% cheaper. The other big saving is the carbon. And the number that I always use is that the concrete industry produces 8% of all of the world's carbon emissions, which is massive. Steel is another 11%, I think. So the airline industry, which is the one that everyone gets bent out of shape about, is 2%. So concrete is four times worse. And I'm you know sat here as an architect designing buildings, which are producing a huge amount of carbon. So if you can maintain that existing concrete structure and reuse it, you avoid all of that embodied carbon. And that makes a massive difference. So the average conversion project we're looking at right now will save about 6 million kilograms of carbon just by not doing anything, just by keeping the structure there. And it's like such a simple win. 6 million kilograms is like more carbon than I will generate in my entire lifetime. So big number. It's literally by doing nothing. Like what simpler sustainable method can you have than just not building something yeah it's a little less more approach there it's interesting too the caveat of like if you have the right building right i can imagine there are some situations where that's not the case right and then you realize that and maybe that is what maybe hesitancy to people to do this office residential it's that oh no what if i got the wrong building and then what are the headaches that that implies right i'm sure that is what scares people away from it at times yeah it definitely does and we've seen i was in LA for ULI a couple of weeks ago and there's a few presentations there on projects that they really had struggled with for months to get uh, a pro forma that worked to get a financially viable project it's all those classic things of like well it doesn't really lay out for nice units so we'll try and replan it we'll try and change it well the servicing doesn't work we'll have to try and work that out and it's just those problems end up mounting up and up until you get to the point where it just doesn't make sense to continue and that was the problem we wanted to solve. Like that is, it just puts everyone off. There's, you spend three, four months in that design phase, banging your head against the wall, trying to make a layout work and it doesn't. And then everyone who's been involved in the process is, is upset. So, you know, that's what the algorithm does. It will tell you very, very quickly, 
this has got a chance. Let's all concentrate on it or not. And that's critical because we see a lot of projects, even projects that were getting built, honestly, that were just so complicated, so difficult to plan out, so difficult to make sense of that they just shouldn't have really started them. That is a worry that a lot of developers have. It's a thing that's burnt a lot of developers when they've studied these previously and has now kind of put them off doing one in the future. It's tough. Like adaptive reuse of projects is is difficult. It's not like just extruding a typical condo tower that you've done 10 times and moving on. It's, you know, everyone is different. Everyone has its own complexities. But with the right approach and the right kind of team on it, you can do a really good job. Yeah. Like, see, when you're going to these conferences and talking to people, like what is the feedback you should get when you lay all this out because when i hear when you hear like you know just by doing nothing it actually helps the environment and some of these buildings are actually already in the right you know layouts like when you tell people about this and the algorithm pretty good response like better in some areas than not or because from my side like it seems like a no-brainer right yeah it's kind of funny because as i said we've been doing this since the end of 2019 and almost no one cared we kept showing it to people and they were like yeah but you know whatever office is coming back or it's easier to do a ground up one because we know how to do it. We kept plugging away at it, and our actually our chairman at the time was like, "No, we got to, we got to charge for this. We got to charge to use the algorithm." And people weren't interested. They would listen to the presentation, but they just were like, ah, "I don't know. I don't think it's worth it." Fast forward to now, everyone is interested, and it's just that change in market, the change in the office market, the fact that a huge amount of office buildings are going into receivership, and the fact that the housing crisis has continued to escalate. So, you know, four years ago, the reception was, oh, that's interesting, but like not for us. And now it's, you know, people honestly looking relieved that they actually have a path out of these buildings that they have got that are 60, 70% vacant. And they're like, oh my God, we're in trouble. And now we're giving them a solution. We're giving them a path out. And actually surprising to me, even when we go back to them and say, your building doesn't work, there's a sense of relief that they can just be like, all right, at least I have an answer. At least I can like get some sleep because I know what we're going to do. Yeah. And that's why we've you know, we've now done over a thousand of them. It's because that interest level has really changed. We love it, Stephen here. And if anybody is interested in like, you know, following what you guys are doing or maybe yourself, you know, what's the best way for people to kind of see what's going on at Gensler and uh, following along with what you guys do? Yeah. So if you look me or Gensler up on LinkedIn, we're very active on there and, and in the industry, or you can reach out directly if you've got projects or buildings you're interested in. I'm always happy to take a look and see what we can do to help people out. It's a big and ever-changing topic with federal funding coming in and city incentives and all that kind of stuff. So it's definitely something that's worth keeping abreast of as it as it moves forwards. No, absolutely. I really encourage you guys to follow Stephen on LinkedIn and Gensler. And again, Stephen, I know you're a really busy guy. So the fact you took this time today to chat with me is really appreciated. I you know love to have you back on and you know down the line and, and see you know when you're at a thousand and fifteen hundred office residential conversions and see <laughs> what more you've learned with an extra few hundred. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Maybe be good to show you some of the ones we completed and you know, talk about the successes as we start to move more of these through to realization. Everybody, thank you for listening. Make sure you like and subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss the next episode. Till next time. You've reached the end of another episode of Sink or Swim. Make sure to visit us at rensink.com forward slash podcast to access show notes, key takeaways, and where you can sign up to our newsletter to receive free bonus content. If you found value in the show, please also remember to rate, review, and subscribe. 
Don't forget to join us next week for another episode. Thanks for listening.